Welcome back to The Bit and to our mini-series, Sustainability, Our New Standard, where we discuss the ways that sustainability across climate change, COVID, and other factors is transforming investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. In 2050, global electricity consumption is expected to be 60% greater than it is today. And in that same period, the world needs to transition to an economy less reliant on carbon and fossil fuels if we want to protect the planet. So as this energy transition takes shape, demand for renewable power and policies that accelerate it has grown. And renewables are now the cheapest source of power in two-thirds of the world. This transition has major implications for private markets broadly, not just in renewables. So today, we speak to Teresa O'Flynn, Global Head of Sustainable Investing for BlackRock's Alternatives Business. Teresa talks about how sustainability comes to life in private markets, from the growth in renewable power to the disruptions COVID has created in the energy and real estate market. Teresa, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, MC. It's great to be here. So your work focuses on the intersection of sustainability and private markets. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means in practice? I think the first thing I would say is sustainability and ESG is more important for private markets as an asset class, in my opinion. Of course, it's important for every asset class, but the reason it's particularly important for private markets is we're long-term investors and the positions that we hold are liquid. We're often holding positions for five, seven sometimes 10 plus years. And if we think about sustainability as a disruptor and something that's only going to increase into the future, when we're making private markets investments, we really need to think about it. And we think about it in two main ways. Firstly, for all types of investments, how we integrate ESG considerations when we're making investment decisions and owning assets. And the issues that we have to consider will vary considerably depending on what sector you're in, right? If you're making an energy investment, if you're making a healthcare investment, if you're in the technology sector, different ESG issues will be material and relevant to those sectors. So that's all about ESG integration. The other bucket when it comes to sustainability in private markets is those strategies that target specific sustainable outcomes. Renewable power infrastructure is just one example of that. As a private markets investor, you directly own the project or the company and ultimately can drive ESG value creation or sustainability value creation over time. You mentioned that as you integrate sustainability in your investment approach, your decisions depend on what sector you're looking at, like energy or healthcare or technology. So can you give some examples of the kinds of ESG issues that you are thinking about in specific sectors? Let me talk about the healthcare sector. If we take investing in private healthcare providers, a key consideration for us is digging into the care quality of the healthcare provider. What are the patients being treated for and how is the care being provided? Of course, from an investment perspective, one needs to ensure that they're investing in companies that's providing healthcare to the highest standards and absolutely complying with local healthcare regulations. So that's a big S component of healthcare investing. A big G component of private healthcare investing is looking at the governance framework in the care provider. What's the strength of the management team? What are the qualifications and credentials of the staff in the medical practice? And what's the framework around how any customer complaints might get dealt with? If I contrast that with investments in technology companies and the relevant ESG issues that come to the fore, obviously cybersecurity, data privacy are really important and very hot topics. But it's interesting, you might sometimes see an interesting cross-section between 
E and S and G components. So if you're looking at a technology provider that's providing services to the oil and gas sector, as an example, well, clearly a key consideration from a business strength perspective is assessing whether that oil and gas customer will still need that service or if their needs will change over time as a result of this energy transition path that we're on. A major thesis in sustainable investing in private markets is that the energy transition from fossil fuels to renewable power sources will create huge growth in renewable power investments. And when the pandemic hit, we saw greenhouse gas emissions decline. People are commuting less, they're staying at home more. In some markets, those tick back up quite quickly. But do you think that that dynamic, that specific unique context is going to continue and drive continued growth in renewable power? Yeah, I mean, it's important to think about it in two ways. Firstly, if you look at the existing renewables that are up and running and generating electricity today, and then secondly, looking at new build projects. If we look at renewable power assets that exist today and how they fared over the pandemic, as we all know, as our economies grinded to a halt, slowed down as a result of COVID-19, clearly electricity consumption fell around the world. And what is really, really interesting, the actual share of renewables on the grid increased pretty much around the globe. And the reason for that is twofold. As electricity consumption fell and as a result, demand fell, more and more renewables got on the grid because they were the cheapest source of power. Renewable power is the cheapest source of power in about two thirds of the world. So effectively, renewables were displacing more expensive sources of power generation. Another factor, in many countries, particularly in Europe, renewable power has priority grid access, so they get onto the grid first. So I think it's a really interesting takeaway. As electricity needs fell as a result of COVID-19, more renewable power got on the system. The second topic is renewable power additions, new build projects. And if you look at some of the projections from the International Energy Agency, they're projecting that new power generation additions this year will be down by about 20%. However, it's unevenly spread. Upstream oil and gas is going to be down about a third, but the renewable new build investment activity is recovering quickly post the initial shock of COVID-19. New build additions are expected to be down by less than a tenth this year, but we expect that to be reversed pretty quickly. And it really is driven by the fact that renewables are underpinned by this very, very compelling cost dynamic that I mentioned already. There are several forces driving the energy transition to a lower carbon economy, but what do you think are the most powerful? Is it policy? Policy, stimulus, government regulation is always really important and it plays an important role. But I think when it comes to renewables, I want to talk about some of the really strong fundamentals that's underpinning the asset class. We've had the mainstream of renewable power and now actually we're seeing the rise of climate infrastructure. So let me break that down. Firstly, As I mentioned already, renewable power is the cheapest source of power in two thirds of the world today. And that's been driven by incredible cost declines in the price of the equipment over the last five, 10 years. In the last 10 years, solar equipment, the price of the equipment per unit has fallen by about 60%. Wind equipment, wind technology has fallen by about 40%. And at the same time, the actual equipment itself has got incredibly more efficient. So you're getting more bang for your buck. At the same time, I think we all know we're on a massive path to decarbonization. Our worlds need to get greener if we're to align with Paris. And we've seen many countries around the world set net zero 2050 targets. 
So when countries, developers, utilities are thinking about their generation mix, they have a bias to green. And clearly, if green is a cheaper source of generation, it makes a lot of economic sense. And then the final point I would make is our electricity needs are increasing significantly. Between now and 2050, our electricity consumption globally is expected to increase by about 60%. And some of that is driven by the increasing electrification of our lives. If we take transport, for example, the momentum around electric vehicles. So these are just some of the very strong fundamentals that are underpinning the growth and the continued growth that we expect to see in renewables. Policy support is simply an additional tailwind to that, I would say. So it sounds like you think policy is just a tailwind today. How do you think a Biden presidency and their corresponding climate policy will impact the energy transition. I think policy is going to play an incredibly important role in helping to address the hard to decarbonize sectors. Clean energy, including wind and solar, tackles about 40% of global emissions. So decarbonization, the path to net zero, is a much broader conversation than clean energy generation. One needs to look at how heavy industry is going to get cleaner. One needs to look at decarbonizing our transport and our heating sectors. There's a broader scope as well in terms of the food and agricultural sector. And in many respects, I'd categorize a lot of these as the harder to decarbonize sectors. If governments set smart policy signals, create smart regulation, it will help attract capital into these harder to decarbonize areas where, in fact, one could argue the investment model isn't very clear today. Another energy policy initiative under the Biden administration, we're looking at interest to the equation beyond renewable power. There's lots of conversation around the role of carbon capture and sequestration. There's lots of conversation around the role of the hydrogen market. I think we need to see more regulation to drive adoption of electric vehicle use, both for high income and low income earners. I think this will create a very exciting investment opportunity set beyond what we have in renewable power today, which is quite mature. Real estate has a tremendous carbon footprint. So I imagine you're also thinking about decarbonization in real estate. Yeah. So just a couple of stats I'll throw at you, which I think are rather interesting. Buildings account for about 40% of global emissions. So in a transition to a net zero world, the stock of buildings that we have today and the buildings that are going to be built in the future, they need to be as green as possible. And when you think about a building carbon footprint, there's the landlord emissions, the owner of the building, there's the tenant emissions, but also there's the embodied carbon, the actual carbon that's consumed in actually building the building. And as we see more and more countries around the world set net zero targets, we've about 60 countries around the world today that have set 2050 net zero targets, including the UK, which is the only legally binding one. But I think we might see that change over time. I think we can expect more regulation with teeth addressing this carbon equation in the building sector. And my final stat that I'll throw at you, MC, is a lot of our buildings are quite old. About 65% of the building stock that exists today will be around in 2050. When we're making real estate investments, when we're managing our existing portfolios, we need to be looking for ways to reduce their carbon footprint. COVID-19 has, of course, introduced plenty of economic and financial risk. 
well apart from sustainability. So for real estate, there are concerns about even just collecting income and how asset prices might be affected going forward. So if that's the case, is it realistic that developers or investors might actually focus on ESG in real estate? Yeah, it's a really valid question. It plays to a question that perhaps was on many people's mind for many years, which is when the next economic crisis hits, will sustainability and ESG considerations get pushed to the side? The answer to that is uh, unequivocal no. Undeniably, real estate as a sector is going through a structural shift. As a result of the pandemic, our relationship with buildings and the need for real estate has obviously changed. Maybe it's permanent. Some would question that. And against that backdrop, I would say that ESG has never been more important for generating alpha in our real estate investments. If we lean into sustainability, if we improve the ESG credentials of our buildings, we'll ultimately be more attractive to the end consumer, the end tenant. Let me bring that to life with an example. Indoor air quality. What's the quality of the ventilation system? The health and wellness aspect of properties is incredibly important. And COVID-19 has really put that topic center stage. And that's just one example of if you get that equation right, you can use ESG as a way to differentiate your property. And my final comment on this topic and bringing it back to the whole conversation that we've been having around decarbonization, if we think about you know the building sector, and as mentioned, it is a material contributor to carbon emissions. And with that as a backdrop and the path that we're on to net zero, we can expect more regulation with teeth focused on the building sector. We need to be thinking about improving the sustainability performance of our assets, improving the energy efficiency of our assets, managing their carbon footprint. So far, we've talked a lot about climate risk and the E component of ESG. Can you talk about how the other elements of ESG take shape in private markets? So we've had a lot of talk this year about the rise of the S in ESG as a result of COVID-19. E is often easy to quantify, right? If you don't comply with a planning permission, if you don't comply with a particular piece of environmental regulation, one can price that and assess what it means from a investment perspective. The items under S can be quite varied, right? If we take infrastructure again, for example, health and safety considerations are a critical element, right? If you are building a project, if you're operating a project, you need to get health and safety absolutely correct. And in many respects, that part of S is absolutely easy to quantify and get your head around. But I think more complex S topics are supply chain considerations. If you're investing in a company, one needs to think about its supply chain risk. And climate puts a whole new increased focus on that. And, you know, I've heard some people say that COVID-19 is a dress rehearsal for climate change and ultimately climate change being a permanent consideration, not a temporary one. And I think one takeaway from the pandemic is non-financial risks can become financial risks very quickly. I guess the second point to your question is the G piece, governance. It's absolutely critical as a private investor because you have a long-term investment orientation. But I think the GPs can be easier to navigate in the sense that you're often owning a company directly. You're a direct owner of the equity in a company or the equity in a project. And in many cases, we have majority positions and as a result would have majority control of the board. So the ability to drive the bus, so to speak, when it comes to managing G issues as a private investor helps to navigate that as a very critical and important topic. 
So everything that we've talked about relies on being able to measure what has an environmental or social or governance impact. And sustainability data, which is essential for measurement, is notoriously difficult to source and it's notoriously difficult to discern signal from the noise, especially in private markets. Can you just share a snapshot of what the state of data in private markets is today and what you think is going to change in the next couple of years? Yeah, gosh, this keeps me up a lot, I have to say, MC, right? I want to draw a distinction between ESG in private markets and ESG in public markets. In private markets, a big, big difference is we have to manufacture the ESG data. There is no third-party ESG rating report. So digging into environmental reports, digging into 100-plus page legal documents, engaging experts, technical engineers, so on and so forth, in order to try and form a view on what the ESG risk profile for a given company or project is. This intensive raw data gathering exercise, quite frankly, is very clunky. So I'm very excited about the role that technology can play in making it more efficient and effective going forward. Comment number two, once we make an investment, really the conversation just begins, right? How do we get access to information in an efficient and effective way on a go forward basis? Again, I think there's a really critical role for technology to play in that conversation. And then my final comment is... Before our time, MC, there once was a time when there was no such thing as international financial reporting standards. Of course, we have IFRS today. And if you pick up a P&L account of a company in China or one in Ireland or one in the US, there's a consistent frame to kind of assess those numbers. It almost feels like we're at a point in time today where it's like that for sustainability, right? There is an increased recognition and desire for standardization when it comes to sustainability and ESG metrics so that one can compare one private company with another private company or one public company with another public company. So I think in the next few years, we will see a significant drive towards creating a common language for sustainability disclosures for both private and public markets. So one theme in this podcast is that sustainable investing may ultimately just become part of investing. So while it feels new today, and it's certainly growing, in about 10 years, we might not distinguish sustainable investing from investing more broadly. Do you agree with that? I agree wholeheartedly with that. You know, obviously, I have an energy background. I've talked a lot about energy today. And I almost liken the analogy to that. At one stage, we were talking about the rise of renewables. Then we were talking about the mainstream of renewables. And now we talk about the rise of climate infrastructure more broadly. And I think to me, that is a really great way to think about sustainability more broadly. We've seen a rise in sustainable investing. I think our view, and it's held by many in the industry, that COVID-19 has resulted in the mainstreaming of sustainability. Its arrival onto the main stage is unequivocal. It's unambiguous. And in 10 years time, it's just going to be part of our DNA completely. So we end each episode of the sustainability mini series with the same question to each of our guests. What's one moment that changed how you thought about sustainability? Can I give you two? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so I have two moments, one from 2005 and another from 2020. And my one from 2005 was when I was working in the industry. We were an independent project developer developing a wind farm in West Texas and as part of the closing of the project, we decided to create a little video interviewing some of the landowners who were, you know, a critical partner in making sure that the project was a success. 
And one of the comments, one of the Texan landowners said really struck chord with me. And I'm definitely not going to put on a Texan accent, but he said, man, who'd have thought you could make money from something you don't even own? And I thought that that was just an awesome way to really capture the tremendous opportunity set associated with renewable power. You're harnessing a free resource. You're delivering green, clean electricity to the end consumer. It just makes so much economic sense. And to me, it captures what sustainability should be all about. So that's moment number one. And then moment number two is January 2020, when our founder and CEO, Larry Fink, talked about putting sustainability at the center of everything that we're doing at BlackRock. It was an incredibly proud moment for someone who's worked in sustainability for a major part of my career. And I can certainly, sitting here today, hand in heart, confirm that sustainability is at the center of everything that we're doing at BlackRock. It's really transforming our business. It's transforming how we serve our clients. And it really is an exciting time to be working in the sustainability sector. Well, as someone who's also in the sustainability sector, I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Teresa. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you, MC. Really enjoyed today's conversation. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. 230 the material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances.
In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.